2: Is
3: identity politics a toxic development tearing society apart, or is it a positive development, finally giving minority voices a say in how society is run? That's the theme of this week's episode of The Sunday Debate, and we pitted David Lammy and the late Don Foster up against Lionel Shriver and Trevor Phillips to try and persuade the audience one way or another. It's a fascinating debate, and we hope you enjoy it. Now let's go to the chair, the BBC's former editorial director, Kamal Ahmed.
4: So, welcome... Welcome, everybody, to this debate. We have voted and will be voting on identity politics is tearing society apart. I am 51 years old. I know I don't look it, but I am, astonishingly. My daughter is 19. Now, when I was 19, uh, politics was left and right. We worried about nuclear war and we changed our names to English names in the hope that no one would notice we looked a bit different. I chose the name Neil. (laughs) I thought, and no criticism criticism of any Neils in the audience, that was the most vanilla, dull (laughs) name I could think of. My name, of course, is Kamal, and I didn't change back to Kamal until I was a little older. I had a friend from the Indian Punjab Who was called Tony? He obviously wasn't called Tony. Had a friend from Thailand called Ian. He wasn't called Ian. And I think underlying that was a notion of what we wanted, those of us who were a bit different. My father is from Sudan, my mother is from Yorkshire, a real north south divide. We wanted acceptance. Now, my daughter is 19. She lives in a different world. The world. Is available on her supercomputer in her hand. She travels the world. She is able to say anything to many, many people anytime she wants via social media. For my daughter and her friends, it's not about acceptance, it's about respect. And that is a very, very different thing. And she is concerned not so much with left or right, but with issues around identity. And the big question is, is that huge change in the type of society we are? When I wanted to share an opinion, I went down the pub and shouted at a couple of mates about what I thought, and no one else heard it. If people now want to share an opinion, they can share it with anybody in the world, and it has changed the way we think about issues and that notion of respect rather than acceptance. That underlines a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now. On the way in, you will have been given one of these cards and told to put it in a little box, maybe tear it up, depending on whether you are for or against, or put it in whole if you feel you don't yet know because you've not heard lots of clever people talking about it. So, I'm going to introduce the speakers from my far uh, right. Our first speaker for the motion is Lionel Shriver, author of 12 novels, including the bestsellers The Mandibles and the Orange Prize winner We Need to Talk About, Kevin, a prolific journalist as well, whose writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Telegraph, The Spectator, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. So Lionel, for the motion, please do take to the podium. And a round of applause.
5: Who are you? Most of us spend our lives trying to evolve a nuanced sense of ourselves. But as far as the identity politics cabal is concerned, if you're an Anglo-Saxon professor of economics at UCL, With a child whose drug addiction has broken your heart, a sideline as a stand up comic, and a passion for polka dancing. All you are is white. Worse, privileged, meaning you should be ashamed of yourself and none of your achievements are to your credit. For the term identity politics implies a worldview. The dogma couches human history exclusively in terms of unequal power relationships between groups. Thus, all of life reduces to human hierarchy. An individual's identity derives solely from membership of a collective. In the service of a revolutionary social justice, your rights will right to be heard, to avail yourself of social resources, and to defend your own interests depend entirely on your having been marginalized due to race, race, ethnicity, sexual preference, gender, or disability. Hilariously, the bulk of identity politics crusaders are actually well-off white people competing over who can be more righteous. I grew up during the civil rights and women's liberation movements in the United States. I was a fierce advocate of both. But the goal of these earlier campaigns was to break down the artificial barriers between us and to release us all into seeing each other not as black or white or male or female, but as individual people. Granted, with race and sex, we've still got a ways to go. But one of the greatest impediments to fully breaking free of our pigeonholes is the rise of identity politics. For we all fall into categories that weren't our our choosing. I was born white, female, and American. No one asked me beforehand whether I wanted to tick those boxes, and they are boxes. So I've never wanted these categories to define me as I wouldn't want the categories into which the folks in this audience were unwillingly born to define you either. The color of my skin is an arbitrary accident, not a personal brand. As a woman, I often break the mold. I'm outspoken and sometimes unpleasantly aggressive. I dress badly. I even make a pretty lousy American, having spent most of my adult life in the U.K., For me, the boxes into which I was born have been confinements I've struggled to get out of and I would wish that liberation for everyone else. Identity politics urges us all instead to cling to the bars of our cages. In locating advantage and disadvantage, too, the movement pushes historically marginalized groups to deploy weakness as a weapon. Thus, you're strongly motivated to maintain that weakness, the better to push other people around with the unfairness of your terrible plight. Perversely, then, victims of racism, sexism, or homophobia, say, logically grow attached to the very prejudice from which they suffer. Because prejudice translates into power. And without victimhood, they have no idea who they are. Ironically, the last thing the identity politics crowd wants to see is a truly equitable society. Absent bigotry, its activists would be lost. Identity politics doesn't eliminate human hierarchy, but simply flips the totem pole upside down. Thus, at the very bottom sit awful, undeservingly advantaged white people, and at the very, very bottom, white straight males, who, according to this creed, have no rights and no business venturing an opinion about anything who are obliged to check their privilege, a.k.a. shut the fuck up. (laughs) Well, I reject out of hand that any group should be told they have no rights and they have to put a sock in it. I happen to be married to a white, straight male, and I'm often very interested in what he has to say. According to identity politics, the sins of the father are visited visited upon the sons. If you're white, you accept responsibility for slavery, colonialism, and the slaughter of native peoples from Australia to America. But do we really believe in infinitely inherited guilt? Let's all be historically clear-eyed. But Germans coming of age today oughtn't to feel personally responsible for Dachau nor should any of us pretend to feel guilty about something we know perfectly well we didn't do. Have you noticed how many headlines these days involve race? How, as sociologists document a steady decline in racial prejudice, relations between races seem to be getting worse? That's because this movement is inherently adversarial. It thrives on enemies. Though ostensibly concerned with victimhood, its proponents gleefully seek victims of their own. Identitarians have created a cutthroat, predatory environment in which often anonymous, self-appointed culture police prowl the halls of the internet searching for perceived violations of their orthodoxies. Using the wrong word, reaching for the wrong pronoun, allowing that amidst all the plunder and domination, maybe countries colonized by Britain enjoyed one or two Teeny tiny benefits can now get you sacked. For this movement has issued in not the color and gender blindness we aspired to in my youth, but a hyper awareness of race, gender, and ethnicity. Implicitly, the ideology pits disadvantaged groups against one another in a competition over who's been treated more badly. Rather than calling us to a shared community, It fosters a climate of anxiety, division, antagonism, touchiness, and paranoia. So in our universities, faculties are terrified to teach or publish anything that might conceivably step on a minority's toes. Self-censorship is rife, persecution common. In workplaces, employees negotiate a minefield of microaggressions and are afraid to make jokes. In my occupation... Fiction is vetted by sensitivity readers, while many of my fellow writers are frightened of crafting characters different from themselves, lest they break a host of proliferating, unwritten rules. In social settings, many of us have, if anything, grown less likely to approach a stranger of a different race, and not because we're bigots, but because we're fearful that we might inadvertently say the wrong thing. I don't call that progress. Looking out the window and seeing only degrees of victimhood is a flat, oppressive, reductive, and depressing way of looking at the world. Sometimes it's a relief to think about something else architecture, color, and light, outer space. So I, for one, do not plan on embracing my skin color or my gender or sexual preference as the sine qua non of my character. For I reject outright the very concept of identity that this poisonous, overtly racist and sexist outlook promotes. I like dancing to talking heads. I'm a big fan of Graham Greene, Richard Gates, and Edith Wharton. I've published 13 books of my own, and whatever their failings, those novels are a part of who I am. I love the word mellifluous. I overuse the word insidious. I have a weakness for pole dark. I'm a mediocre tennis player who makes up for her deficits on the court with sheer ebullience. That and more is my identity. So if anyone aims to put Lionel Shriver, straight white female, on my tombstone, I'm definitely getting cremated.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you very much um uh, Lionel not too not too insidious there. Our first speaker against the motion, identity politics is tearing society apart is Dawn Foster. Uh, Dawn, please take to the podium, Guardian columnist who writes on politics, social affairs and economics and also a staff writer for Jacobin magazine. Dawn
0: So, as some of you might have noticed, I'm a woman, Um, I'm white, I have a disability. And when I think about politics and when I talk about politics, a lot of those identities come into it. So, when I think about austerity, I look at how austerity affects certain groups more than others. So, in particular, austerity affects women. 82% of all cuts that the government have made impact women. If you look at the pay gap, for instance, women are paid less than men. But if you narrow it down, black women are paid a lot less than, than, other than other people. So when you think about politics, identity does have to come into it because everybody experiences things differently personally, but also in terms of economics, in terms of you know, how it affects the community, etc. And when I think about the people, well, when I come across the people who complain about this, they always seem to be exclusively boomers sorry i am closer in age to uh, kamal's daughter than kamal so i am i am of the generation that is part uh, you know partly interested in identity politics and i don't think it i don't think it deflates things i think you know people live their life in a normal way uh, and obviously your identity is part of that so everything that affects you everything that uh, makes up the person that is you including your uh, likes, your hobbies, your dislikes etc it all comes together to form a whole person and I don't think that you know, t- talking to people and understanding that people have different views, different experiences of life you know, because of uh, different identities, I don't think it actually like, deflates things. I don't think it puts people in a box. I think it allows us to be more expansive with policy. I think it allows us to look at pol- uh, political policy and think about how different groups will be affected by it and, th- you know, and therefore stop... Discrimination within that kind of thing. There is a huge amount of concern about universities, about people being no platformed, about people not being allowed to speak, etc. And I always find it really, really fascinating that so many people get upset by a small number of students in a student union when almost nobody else will have heard of these little, these small societies, these small groups. And I think it's I think the big problem is that we have older people who have, you know, columns in big magazines, huge access to the media, uh, constantly saying that they are being silenced. I know this because they write constantly that, that they are being silenced. They go on TV to talk about the fact that they have been silenced. Um, and, you know, I think if they were, I wouldn't be constantly hearing about them. And I think it, you know, I think actually identity politics helps those people because it allows them to constantly place articles in The Spectator, in Spiked magazine, in all sorts of places, talking about the fact that they have been silenced and that identity politics is ruining their life, etc. And, you know, thinking about Lionel's speech, I have a lot of friends who are white men, and I don't look at them and think, Good lord, you're so privileged, it's disgusting. Uh, because they are my friends and I don't look at them as a, you know, having a tick box on their chest that explains things about them. I think that, you know, for instance, me having, having a disability changes my life somewhat. I'm in hospital a lot, my friends know that and come and see me. But it doesn't really change anything else. I think identity politics is actually really, really helpful in terms of making sure that we think uh, more deeply about how policy affects people, about how we can stop kind of get, you know gaps in admissions to university, how we can stop uh, people being paid less, how we can look at the fact that if you are disabled, you are less likely to get a job, and how we can you know change things to bring other people in. I think that we have to move past the you know terrifying fear that a lot of boomers have around this i I think it's a lot more useful to talk about it and think about how discrimination happens and how we can stop that from happening one one really really key bit i think david will talk about this is university admissions so for instance oxford you know had a huge race problem they have a huge class problem and you know Bringing that up and talking about it means that they will actually take some action and think about that. There have been some court cases where people have looked at the fact that that, that, certain policies are bound to affect women, therefore they are discriminatory. Uh, Other policies, for instance, like exclusively seem to hit disabled people... And those people have gone to court and talked about the fact they've been discriminated against and often won the cases and changed the policy. So I think that, you know, if we want to have a more equal society, there is no way we can do that without thinking about identity, without thinking about how certain things mean that other people find it harder to get into certain jobs, find it harder to reach certain things, or even, you know, come into a building because there isn't a wheelchair ramp. So I think that... identity politics is not about deciding who is the villain, who is the most privileged, who we should never ever talk about and and attack and talk about their privilege. I think it's much more about making sure that our society is more welcoming to people and that political policy doesn't uh, discriminate against individuals and big groups. It does at the moment. Austerity massively affects women and it massively, you know, if you are a woman and you are disabled, you're doubly discriminated against by certain policies. That is identity politics and, you know, I think we need to remember that if we are making policy, it needs to be more equal. It needs to make sure that, for instance, if you are a young black person and you're applying for a certain job, you know, or or a place in a university, you aren't discriminated against by the way that the interview takes place. And so I think identity politics is about equality. It's about making sure that everybody has the same access and that access might be slightly different based on their identity. And I think that it's led to a lot of people thinking more deeply about how they act and how society should be built. So I... I'm against the motion. I think that we should be more equal, and I think that identity politics is key to that. We can't move past identity. We can't ignore identity. And I think that you know maybe at some point the boomers will understand that. Thank you
4: very much, Dawn. Thank you very much. our next speaker for the motion, uh, Trevor Phillips, to my right, uh, was chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission between 2003 and 2012. The co-founder of the Diversity Analytics Consultancy, Weber Phillips, uh, and he is presently chairman of the Index on Censorship. He's a director of the Barbican Arts Centre and vice president of the Royal Television Society. Trevor.
6: Well, good evening, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this discussion. Let me introduce myself. I'm the tenth of ten children of an immigrant family, came here in 1950. We're descendants of slaves, including a woman, the earliest known member of our family. She was called Happy, presumably some slave owner's idea of a great joke. Further back, we would have come from the Mandinka or Fulani people of West Africa, like David. Uh, he also comes from Guyana that's a whole other identity story to tell you but we're great my ancestors were therefore Muslims but of course we had all that whipped out of us probably in our case by the biggest plantation owners in British Guyana John Gladstone yes the father of the liberal uh, prime minister William Gladstone and the largest single beneficiary of compensation after abolition I also have a professional identity. I used to do TV. Don't do much these days, I've only made three films in the last 20 years. Before that, with my brother Mike, I wrote the book and made the series which told the Windrush story first. Today, I occasionally write for newspapers and uh, magazines, but mostly I'm basically a boring businessman. I chair a talent business called Green Park, and for the past four years uh, uh, I was president of the Council of the John Lewis Partnership. Uh, I run a small data analytics business, It's probably a legacy of my time as a chemist when I was young. I said all that out to try to explain why I come at this debate from the way I do. My background may explain some of what I say. Uh, I agree with some of what Dawn said, by the way. <laughs> Identity is more important because it now represents some real interests that for the first time in many centuries, has a voice. Women, obviously, minorities. When my father came here, the white family who lived across the road could afford to be friendly with us. They knew that no matter how clever my dad was, how hard he worked, how ambitious he might be, when it came to getting a job or a house or a loan, we would never be ahead of them in the queue that divided us from them. Not income, not the area we live, but that thing. That thing. And by the way, it's not just poor people of color who suffer because we'll have an argument, no doubt, about class here. When I was chairman of the Commission for Racial Equality, the people who were most affected, who wept in my office, were not young black men harassed by the police, they were. The teacher who knew that because he was black oration, he would never become a department head. The lawyer who knew that no matter how clever she was and how hard she worked, she was never going to take silk. And the doctors who knew that they would always be junior doctors and never consultants. They had done everything that this society asked of them, everything. But the prison of their skin kept them in a place that meant they would never, never reap the rewards of their diligence. We may tonight talk about institutional racism or sexism. Stokely Carmichael came up with that phrase for a very specific reason. It was a critique of Martin Luther King. Carmichael said that the point he was making was that racism was so baked into society that you could have a police force full of black angels and they might still be shooting black people. Everybody said that, don't be ridiculous. 50 years on, the killings of young black men all over the USA, often by black police officers, says that Carmichael was right. So tonight, this is really, for me, about politics and its place in society. There's only one reason for politics to exist, and that is to help us solve problems. Now, for over a century and a half, our political architectures followed economic and social divisions, workers to the left, bosses to the right. But we're in an era of extreme, possibly unprecedented disruption, and the real tribal divide in our society symbolize the deepest differences about what kind of people we want to be. I'm a Remainer, pro-globalization, massively pro-immigration, pro-technology, socially liberal, London-centric, you'd expect that. But I don't disrespect my many relatives who live in, say, Essex or Nottingham who feel just as passionately anti-globalization, cautious about immigration, and that includes my black relatives, anti digitization and who loathe London's arrogance. A survey taken after the referendum asked about people's attitude to various topics. On the economy, on capitalism, there was absolutely no difference between Remainers and Leavers. 51% thought capitalism was a force for ill, 49% force for good. Asked about multiculturalism, 71% of Remainers thought it was a force for good, 81% of Leavers thought it was a force for ill. 60% of Remainers were pro-feminism, lower than I'd expect, 74% of Leavers were against feminism. My point is, it is these issues of identity that are dividing us. This debate is really about one thing. Identity politics is a politics that is tearing our society apart. I think that's objectively true. But perhaps where I differ with the other panellists, possibly including Lionel, is that they will all lament this fact. I don't. I think it is a wonderful thing. Our opponents confront the world with timidity in the hope that the existing political architecture can be tweaked and twisted into coping. Polly Toynbee versus Richard Littlejohn. Labour versus Tory. None of that worked for me or for 60% of the British people who say, there is nobody I can vote for. If you really believe in liberation, this is gonna be a struggle. What makes you think that the straight white Propertyed men are going to give it up without a fight. Our society will be torn apart in order to get justice. We need a political map now that allows us to represent the true divisions in our society. One of my daughters said to me when I told her what I was going to say tonight, Oh, I see you're channeling Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> what the hell do you mean? Well, she said, Sam would just get up and he'd say this. Everything's changing. Politics has got to change too. Let's just tear this motherfucker down and start something new.
4: So we'll go to our final speaker against the motion. Identity politics is tearing society apart. David Lammy, Labour MP for Tottenham, one of Parliament's most prominent campaigners for social justice, famously led the recent campaign for the Windrush generation to be granted British citizenship. He's fought for justice for the Grenfell Tower families and, of course, has run the high profile campaign calling on Oxbridge to improve access for students from underrepresented and disadvantaged backgrounds. David, the floor is yours.
7: Yeah. Great. great. So the great story of the 20th century was probably democracy. But if there is a second story, theme that arcs that century, surely it is rights. And that by the end of that century, so many human beings who started off at the beginning of the 20th century, subjugated, oppressed, could actually begin to self-actualize in their own lifetimes. Women got the vote and with the invention of the pill, control over their own bodies. Ethnic minorities colonized. Remember those pink bits of the atlas over so much of the world? Broke off because of the powerful words and behavior of people like Gandhi from that colonization. Workers came from being exploited birthed movements like the Labour Party and I still believe at its best the best progressive cause in our country and now same-sex marriage and those who are LGBT taking their place when it's only in 1967 that you could be imprisoned because of the person that you love. That is a remarkable story the story that is the story of the 20th century. And of course that is a story about identity. Because when Martin Luther King spoke and he talked about judging somebody by the character of their soul, not by the colour of their skin, have we arrived at that? And, and even though that was a goal, Even though that was a goal, he didn't park his identity at the door to get that goal. And neither did Harvey Milk fighting for gay rights in San Francisco and beyond. And all those fighting for disability rights. So for me, identity politics is about empathy. It is about dignity. And my God... I look Nigel Farage in the face and I say it's about compassion. Compassion for your fellow human being. So we stand by that progress despite all that we have to do. We're now in a period where those on the right dismiss it. When I raise concerns about Who should lead the inquiry into those poor people that died desperately? Included a friend of mine on the 20th floor of Grenfell Tower, burned to death, a young woman called Khadija Say. And I raised questions about who should lead that inquiry. Because actually, in the role that I play in public life, someone should say, does it have to be another white, male, privileged, upper-class judge. Not because he can't do a good job. Scarman did a good job when he led the riots into the Brixton riots. But is there not, in Britain in 2019, an ethnic minority lawyer or even a woman that could take that role? And I say that at a point in our country where only 7% of the judges are from an ethnic minority background and we have one, one woman on our Supreme Court. Progress, so much more, so much more to do. And yes, there are moments when it goes too far. If you're tweeting or writing white people are trash, kill all men, that is identity politics that I would not want to associate myself with. But let us be clear on the proposition. Let us really single in on what may be tearing our society apart. Populism might well be tearing our society apart. Populism on the hard right and populism on the hard left. Austerity, cuts, brutal cuts to local authorities right up and down the country. The biggest north-south divide since 1911. That may be tearing our society apart. Grim poverty, chronic housing conditions right across this city that means so many people who could be in this audience aren't in this audience. That could be tearing our society apart. Gross inequality, with 44% of the UK's wealth owned by just 10% of our population. 50% of the land in the UK owned by 1% of the population. That could be the proposition. That could be tearing our society apart. But instead, this proposition asks you, blame the Bangladeshi woman. Blame the trans man. Blame the individual with disability. And then they say they're victims. And we heard that language from Lionel. Victimhood, the victimhood that is being manipulated in our country is a victimhood that's being peddled today by Nigel Farage. It is not the victimhood of the people I just described. So reject this proposition. It is not tearing our society apart. It's an arc that begins with people like Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Emily Pankhurst, stand alongside it. Because in the age that we are in, there is a big difference between dignity, compassion and human rights and the populism that would rip our country asunder.
4: Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Uh, So we're going to, um, I think possibly up there, reveal the initial vote for and against uh, the motion. And if it doesn't pop up, I will read it out. Uh, I will read it out. Uh, as Hannah tells me to do, because I do what Hannah tells me, because that's an important part of this uh, organisation. So, for the motion, Identity Politics is Tearing Society Apart, 50% agree. (laughs) Against the motion, Identity Politics is Tearing Society Apart, 13%. Undecided, those of you who tore this No, sorry, didn't tear this and just put it in on its own, 37%. So the panel, you have got a large undecided group, and you may actually move some people between those two numbers. But before we go to questions, clearly those for the motion are in the, not the majority, but in the lead, not quite the majority. So, let's have questions from the floor. Hands up. Number four.
1: Hello. I'm quite interested in the emerging idea that um, almost inadvertently identity politics is inhibiting genuine social change because by encouraging people to embrace micro-facets of individual identity, we are inhibiting the possibility of the type of collective group action that's really needed to affect meaningful change on a broad, uh, actually important social level, and therefore maybe inadvertently maintaining the status quo and actually being more favourable to quite extreme right-wing views. I'd just like to get some of the panel's thoughts on that.
4: Okay, thank you very much. Um, Number two. Uh, mine's a quite quick one. Um, you spoke a lot about Nigel Farage at the end there. Is he not a big purveyor of identity politics? I thought he just, you know, for me, Brexit party, UKIP, this is peak identity politics, no? It's about identity. Thank you very much. So if I could kick off uh, first, maybe Dawn with you, on the um, question from the back left there. Identity, identity politics in and of itself is actually harming change and is stopping us having the type of conversations we could have. So oddly, small c is a conservative movement.
0: Um, I completely agree with uh, the characterization of what you said about um, a lot of uh, the talk about identity politics online. I think that basically a small number of people, a very, very small facet on the on the internet, who are relatively extreme in how they define identity politics and how they talk about it, have been publicised massively and characterised as uh, as a huge movement. Um, And often people talk about you know, this very relatively small group online uh, as if if they, you know, uh, represent everybody. I think they're a very, very small extreme facet that get a lot of attention online. Um, But the majority of people who think about identity politics, who think about how identity affects things in everyday life, um, aren't part of that group. They don't spend a lot of time online talking about it. Um, they, They spend a lot more time volunteering. They spend a lot more time looking at problems in society. Um, and I think that. I've never been involved in a, in, a, in a volunteering group or talking about what policy should look like, etc., with think tanks, etc. I've never kind of come up against uh, any barriers because people have talked about identity politics and it's stopped us from getting further. So I think that a very, very small group online uh, characterised as uh, you know, the entirety of, of identity politics when for, you know, the majority of people aren't involved in that relatively small group in liberalism. And I think it is liberalism Rather than socialism in this case. Um, and they are characterized as the as entire as uh, group because they are very extreme and they fulfill a lot of the um, kind of worries about these things on the right. But in everyday life, I don't see that. Uh, instead, I see people thinking more about uh, when, they, when they talk about policies that should be you know, in, uh, accepted by the government, they look more deeply at how they affect different groups. And I don't see that that group online has changed okay. that in any way.
4: I mean, Lionel, the question seemed to be pointing towards the notion that identity politics allows for a form of micro-extremism which stops us talking about things and is quite conservative. But Dawn's point is that that's a mischaracterisation that actually... Your characterization of shutting down debates via identity politics isn't the case. It's not true when you actually talk to people about their identities. You're confusing the aggression of Twitter with identity politics.
5: Um, I see that aggression everywhere, uh, including on Twitter and other social media platforms. Uh, but I, and I certainly see it uh, in the extremists uh, on uh, college campuses, And that's not necessarily on social media. I don't think you can um, conveniently exclude the uh, less attractive and more shrill proponents of this ideology um, because they don't help your case.
4: Trevor?
6: Do you want to talk about this particular question? That that particular question? Okay. Uh, Well... I don't think this is actually just about extremes. One of the things that is happening on college campuses, and, uh, I see somebody who is sitting in this audience who is, at, has actually, or is currently, uh, an object of this, is that you don't have to have a sort of big ferrari fer- about people being you no know, platforms and so on for something quite dramatic to happen. One of the things that is taking place right now is that the uh, boundaries that describe, for example, what will bring your employee into disrepute are, are shifting. And one of the uh, things that we're seeing on college campuses is that the disciplinary procedure, procedure is being used because, it is said, somebody who has, for example, made a disobliging remark about um, about women or indeed about trans people is therefore bringing the college or the university into disrepute. And at least two people I know have been fired for this point. Now, the question is, do you have that argument or do you simply put people outside of the door? And what we are doing right now and this is what I think people are talking about when they talk about identity politics. It's not exactly what I mean, but what they mean is that actually, uh, shutting down debate, what is actually happening is it is becoming more and more difficult, more and more uncertain what you can say without facing that kind of treatment. And I think that is where this is really uh, getting traction. And it will leak off the campus into other places, into employees. Now, I think it has. The
4: question is, how do we deal with this? Okay. Really? If, the person, if the person, hold on, David. if the yeah, person who has been no platform wants a platform here, please put their hand up. Um, David, answer that point that Trevor just made, but also answer the point that doesn't your um, constant, or the question, doesn't your uh, constant reference to Nigel Farage uh, reveal that identity politics is tearing society apart because his, the questioner was suggesting, is a type of identity politics?
7: Nigel Farage is playing out of a playbook that is far longer than the identity politics prefix. It's a playbook that you can look back to in the 1920s. It's what happens after economic downturn. It's blame the immigrant, blame the other. It's their fault that your situation is what it is. So so I'm not sure... It's completely right to ascribe to him. Yes, he's. Yes, of course he is. He is playing to an audience, and it is an audience. But, but it's not entirely. You know, there's a lot said about white working class. There are many, many people in the home counties. They're, they've, they own homes. They have nice pensions. They're still attracted to that rhetoric. So it's much more. Complicated. The reason why I was a little bit. Down on what Trevor said, it's only a little bit. Um, is that one confining this conversation to what's happening on university campuses is incredibly limited, because university campuses, in the end, affect um, largely middle-class kids who are going to go on to be part of a liberal elite, and they've always been rows. On university campuses across much of the developed world. The second thing is, okay, so Lionel, some lecturers have got to be a bit careful about what they say. Hang on a minute, my ancestors had to be really careful about what they said. Women had to be really careful about what they said. Gay, gay men and women, you know, they are still living in jobs, not able to be who they are. Let's get real about where the real pain is. I'm so sorry that you, well-paid university professor and writer, chat a little bit carefully about your language, despite your amazing Ivy League education. I think you can work it out. I think you can work it out.
4: Where Where are the numbers popping up for me to see? Number two, Yep.
1: You said that populism may be tearing our society apart, and you said identity politics isn't the thing to blame. Well, there are many cases where identity politics is used for populism. For example, in Turkey, where I come from, Erdogan is using religion, a type of identity, and he's using it as populism. And he's getting people who have the same identity to support him. So surely identity politics and populism are related.
4: Thank you. Uh, number four number four, stand up thank you, hello
2: Hi, uh, thank you, um, yeah my question is to those who are against the motion because um, I need a bit more clarity on what their arguments are because they seem to talk about austerity and virage and stuff like that and, and I don't think that's really the topic that we're discussing Dawn said that uh, austerity affects 82% more women than men um, that may be true, I don't know but you know, if you wanted to raise the tax rate on higher earners, that would probably affect more men than women. But I don't understand by looking at the demographics that policies affect why that should play a role in deciding whether we think it's good policy or not. I'm not sure why it affecting more women or men is a reason for me to oppose austerity. I oppose austerity because it harms people, men and women. I don't understand why it harming women, you know, do we say that things that harm women matter more than things that harm men. That seems to just be pitting men and women against each other.
4: Okay. Okay. Dawn, for the gentleman at the back, Mm -hmm. could you explain why you linked the notion of identity politics to the differential effects of policies which you've discussed and answer the question that just because something uh, tends towards, as you argue, tends to affect negatively certain groups, that that's isn't actually identity politics and and things that um, uh, affect women negatively. If they also affect men, there shouldn't be a dividing line there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I brought that up because I think that if you have a policy that like massively affects uh, a certain group and stops them from achieving certain things in life, then you have a you have a bad policy. I mean, austerity is bad for no, you know, a number of reasons, not least the fact that it's been shown economically not to work. Um, but if you have a policy that like deliberate, that, that very deliberately. Uh, it you know, stops a quality of opportunity for certain people, then there's no reason to have that policy. You know, if you had a policy that like, massively affected disabled people, you would you know, again think this is a bad policy. Um, and I think that if you looked at you know, uh, raising tax on higher earners and it affected more, more, more men than women, that's because men tend to earn a lot more. It's not because you know, uh, the government hate men and, and you know, move that way. Um, so that's it. But
4: it seemed to be the point was that if a policy affects a certain group of people, but also affects another group of people, but fewer of them, it doesn't make it less important for the group that happened to be in the minority in terms of the effects.
0: No, but I think that, again, you can have a policy that is racist uh, because... it. Uh, almost exclusively affects black people. Um, you can have a policy that is sexist because it almost exclusively affects women. And you know, we used to have um, uh, we used to have uh, equality audits on policies, and pe- uh, people and people would look at what would happen to. Two people beforehand, we've scrapped that, and that means that often we do have policies that are discriminatory. Scrapped that, Trevor. That
4: was something that um, I, I, the Equality and Human Rights Commission used to oversee. Sorry, I didn't quite understand the point. Equal- okay. Equality audits before policies were put in place. Yeah. They're still there, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, they're, well, are oh, not? No,
6: they're not. You're, 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 there's guidance that you can do it, but it's not what we, what
4: we wanted compulsory. Yeah. Right. Okay. David, what about the point that the questioner over there raised? Identity politics is tearing society apart, as he explains, anyone in Turkey would tell you.
7: I have a large Kurdish population in my constituency. I think it's the biggest um, in the country. Uh, And many Kurds are on the rough end of treatment from Erdogan in terms of their language their liberties, never mind the judges, the journalists, um, and the conspiracy of silence, frankly, from the West in relation to what he is doing um, in Turkey. My own sense of what's happening in Turkey is far deeper than the description described as identity politics. But you are right. Of course, there are people using identity uh, as a means to push a kind of totalitarianism um, in relation to their populations. Of course that is happening. Uh, or to preference one group. And of course, I'm, you know, I, I think we always have to challenge supremacy. And I don't just talk about white supremacy when I say that. I'm, I'm talking about people in the world who effectively are ethnic nationalists saying that one group of people are more supreme than others, and that is what he is up to in Turkey. But I say also in this country, and that's why I talk about Farage to go to the question at the back, that there are people who want to describe, particularly English identity, I, I'm really comfortable being British, but I want to assert very strongly I am also English, and I want to challenge those who want to confine Englishness to solely an ethnic Anglo-Saxon identity. I defend my right to be English. And so, yes, there are people doing that. Yes, there are people doing that. But because they are doing that is not the reason to then challenge those who are clearly still far behind in the pecking order. As I said, the Bangladeshi woman, the trans woman, Deny them their rights in order to say we are all the same. And that is what you hear. And Lionel, that's what I picked up in part. of somehow, somehow our common humanity means we cannot talk about identity because in the end, that is usually used by those in a privileged position to shut down. It's like those who say to me, please don't talk about judges, David, and who gets to be a judge. You've got to be a judge on merit. Why is merit always defined as an Oxbridge educated, public school educated white male? Or is merit found in other areas? It shuts down possibilities. And that is why I believe identity politics, yes, it's real. But it's, 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 it's necessary. It's not about being good. It's necessary. And those who, those who defend and want to extend rights, to have equal rights, it's not about claiming you're better than another. It's simply about reclaiming your human dignity. And that human dignity, that fight for human dignity goes on. Thank you very much. We're just about out of time. I'm very sorry.
4: We're not going to be able to have any more questions. The final result uh, from our magnificent audience here. Thank you so much for coming. For the motion, let's remember, it was 50% before we heard the august panellists. After the, It was 50% for the motion. After the debate, 55%. So it's gone up slightly. But hold on, David. Hold on. All will have prizes. Let's not forget that against the motion, before you heard the august opinions of these panellists, 13%, that has shot up to 35%, with only 10% now undecided. So everybody's won, and it shows just how hard public votes are to interpret. (laughs) And on that note, I want to say thank you very much to you. Thank you very much to Intelligence Squared, Hannah and the team for organising such a great debate. And thank you very much to the panellists.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.